And that song leads into our message today, which is talking about wisdom and foolishness. And the question that we face today is, do we actually need or desire wisdom? I want to share with you today some statements I found this week about a foolish and a wise person and see if you agree with them or not. So there's eight statements. I just did that. That's five. Eight statements. And uh, see what you think. Number one, a fool thinks that they know everything and a wise person thinks they don't know everything. Two, a fool is always eager to talk and a wise person is always eager to listen. Number three, a fool is certain that they have arrived. A wise person knows it's a long road. Number four, a fool talks before thinking. A wise person thinks before talking. Number five, a fool thinks that they're never wrong. A wise person knows they're not always right. Number six, a fool's temper is all over the place. A wise person remains calm. Number seven, a fool thinks saying sorry is a sign of weakness. A wise person thinks saying sorry is a sign of strength. And number eight, a fool finds comfort with other fools. A wise person seeks others for wisdom. So, of those statements, did you agree, disagree, maybe with some, Maybe you agreed with some and not with others. I think most of us would like to be known as wise. And most cultures used to value wisdom. I'm not sure ours does anymore. But wisdom is more than knowledge. It includes knowledge, yet it also combines it with experience and with reflection. Wisdom, for example involves knowing not only what to say, but when and how to say it. Wisdom is often learned from others. And I want you to think for a moment about how you react to that or respond to that or what bubbles up with you, within you if I were to say, you and I need to learn wisdom from others. So how do you react to that? Some of us might say, yeah, of course, that's the way it is. Some of us might come, find comfort in that, thinking, oh, it's good that I don't have to know everything myself. Some of us might be offended by that, thinking, well, I don't need to learn wisdom from others, or think that it's unnecessary, or think that it's a lot of work. My question about our world is, does our society seek wisdom today? Or are we more interested in information? We have unlimited access to information today, yet is everything on the internet wise? New Testament scholars Craig Blomberg and Miriam Carnell write this, Ironically, as access to information and knowledge continues to explode, most notably through the internet, the prevalence of true wisdom seems to wane or lessen. Formerly, when writers had to pass the strict criteria of respected publishers, the reading public knew 
that what they read would contain a measure of truth. But now, when anyone can create a website and broadcast any fantasy as truth, it becomes increasingly hard to know whom and what to believe. For example, countless people around the world gullibly accepted the fiction of the Da Vinci Code about Christian origins a few years ago. And they did this without any research on their own while rejecting or remaining unaware of the painstaking demonstrations by historians and archaeologists of the accuracy of countless texts of Scripture. Yet this abandonment of wisdom, especially ancient wisdom, is not surprising in our world today. For our culture values personal autonomy or self-rule as one of, if not the, highest value. We are bombarded with the benefits of a radically individualistic lifestyle. And to live like that requires one to reject the wisdom of others. So someone living like this might say, I don't want to follow someone else's wisdom. I want to find my own way. It's more exciting, more freeing. And this seems to be the philosophy of many today. They live according to a non-religious wisdom. They believe that following their own wisdom is better and wiser than following the wisdom of someone else, let alone the wisdom of God. The late Tim Keller, in his book on preaching, quotes an author from the early 1900s called P.T. Forsyth, or named P.T. Forsyth, and in his 1907 book entitled Positive Preaching and the Modern Mind, he writes, modern people believe that we are our own authority. In 1907, he wrote that. Keller then writes, perhaps the root idea, idea of modernity or modern thinking, as Forsyth saw, was overturning all authority outside the self. So in early modernity, the 17th to the 19th centuries, we were told, lay aside all tradition and religious belief and arrive at truth using reason alone. And this was an exceptional move towards individualism. The idea that each person had within him or herself the capability of discovering truth without the aid of ancient wisdom or divine revelation. That was the early 1900s. Now we live in a time called late modernity, the late modern times, and Keller writes a summary of what he calls the hidden belief of secularity. So this is what a secular person today might believe. He, he describes it like this. So this is what the secular, non-religious person might believe or say. We have come to realize we don't need God to explain the world we see, for science does that job for us. We don't need God or religion to be moral to love and work for a better world or to have meaning and fulfillment in life. What we need is to be free, to live life as we see fit and to work together 
to make the world a better and more just place to live. And religion gets in the way of all of this. It constrains our freedom to live as we wish and divides us so we can't work together. Do you know people who might agree with a lot of that? Some of you might agree with some or parts of it. It sounds so inviting and freeing and hopeful. It claims human beings and human resources alone are able to figure out life. We don't need old and dated wisdom. We can discover our own wisdom in our brave new world. But is this so-called wisdom working? Is the whole gender ideology and gender fluidity movement actually bringing peace to people who are struggling? Are we a more peaceful society as a whole or more divided than ever? Does this society that is supposedly all about human rights stand up for the rights of the unborn, the mentally ill, the elderly, those in terminal health situations? And could it be that this experiment of deleting God and ignoring his wisdom is actually disastrous for individuals, families, and a society? The Bible claims that great life-giving wisdom can be found in God. In Proverbs 2, for example, we read words like this, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Or Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, verse 24, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will be like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. So the wisdom literature in the Bible claims that God's wisdom can bring us life. It can protect us from life-destroying choices and pathways. It can sustain us when the storms of life rage. It can lead us to God, the giver of life. And it claims his wisdom and words are perfect. So the question for us today is simply this. Whose wisdom have we been living? Whose wisdom have we been following? And James brings this question to us as we look at the next passage in the letter from James. And I have been praying that the Spirit is going to reveal to us today first whose wisdom we have been living by. And then I pray about the possibility of discovering the beauty of God's wisdom and that the Spirit will create in us a desire to learn it and live by it 
in the power of Jesus. So if you want to follow along today, find your Bibles in James 3, chapter, 13, uh, chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. It's also in the Bibles in front of you on page 856. So James 3, verses 13 to 18, where James introduces a section on wisdom. And in just these six verses, he says this. Who is wise and understanding among you. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So this paragraph follows the section on the taming of the tongue, and it seems like James just drops it in here with no transition. It's just like a new topic, but there are connections to that which has come before. James has mentioned wisdom already in this letter, and in chapter 1, verse 5, he said, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously without finding fault. So he's already introduced this need to find wisdom. And then the main theme of this letter is basically you, if you are living your faith out in Christ, must produce good works because that's naturally what happens. Faith without works is dead, but faith that produces good works reveals a real or true faith. And we see both of these in verse 13 where James asked, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct... Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So he's saying, anyone can claim to be wise. But how do we really know? We know through their good works and doing works in the meekness of wisdom. So people who follow God's wisdom do good works and have a humble attitude. And I get that humble attitude part from the last phrase in verse 13, which in my version says, the meekness of wisdom or the humility that comes from wisdom. So James connects a humble attitude with wisdom. And when a person does their good works without a desire for recognition, without boasting, without drawing attention to themselves, they indicate that they are acting out of wisdom. This is Christian meekness or humility. And this starts with a healthy relationship with God, where we see God for who he is and see us for who we are in light of God. So God is the Holy One. He's high, exalted, and we're the creatures, his creatures, the one he has created. We exist because of his grace and mercy. He values us deeply. He made us in his image, yet we rebelled against him. 
We need forgiveness. So humility before God is appropriate. And then we receive grace, mercy, and help. But a, a Christian who is living with wisdom will also be humble in their relationship with one another. So we don't think of ourselves as higher than others. We don't treat people as lower or lesser. We imitate Jesus who had this humble attitude. And I hope that you have encountered people in your life who have served with the meekness of wisdom. They have done what they do just to serve not to draw attention to self. And I hope you've experienced people who work behind the scenes and did not expect recognition and set that example for you of living with the meekness of wisdom. Now, I want to share with you about one person that I can think of who lives like this. She's in the room right now, and it's my wife, Lori. So Lori's right down there. She exhibits this humility with wisdom. And if you know Lori, there's only one area in her life where she struggles with humility, and that's in board games. <laughs> and I had permission to share that today, right? When board games happen, some sort of competitive monster comes out of Lori. But in every other area of life, she does all this stuff behind the scenes that keeps our house and family going. She gets to see me at my best and my worst and my weakest. She prays, and it is so comforting to hear from her at some point in the day, I'm praying for you. I'm lifting you up. She is an example to me of someone who lives by God's wisdom, living out the meekness of his wisdom, not wanting praise, not seeking recognition. So thank you so much for being that in my life and in our family's life. And a person who has real wisdom and understanding shows it by their good conduct and their humility. Then James moves on to show the example of the opposite of this kind of wisdom. And in verse 14, he writes this. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This basically says that people who live by the world's wisdom have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in their hearts. And James is saying here that if you've got bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't claim that you have wisdom. Don't lie. These things reveal that you're not living by the wisdom that comes from above. Now let's think about jealousy and selfish ambition for a moment. Jealousy is related to the word zeal or zealous, and there is a good kind of zeal or zealousness. It is a jealousy for another. So jealousy for something can be a good kind of jealousy. If one is jealous for the Lord, it means I'm not going to let any other God capture my heart. I'm going to be jealous for my relationship 
with the Lord. In marriage, if a person is jealous for their marriage, they're not going to let anyone else capture their heart. They're going to be uh, devoted to and loyal to their marriage. And Jesus himself was zealous for his father's house when the money changers turned a place of prayer into a den of robbers. But the bad kind of jealousy is different. It is jealousy of. It seeks the best for oneself. It is often competitive. It wants more for itself and less for others, whether it be attention, money, popularity, status, power. And notice James not only talks about jealousy, but bitter jealousy. So it's a sour attitude that pours out when a person doesn't get what they want or doesn't get the best or the most. And if you pose a threat to a person who harbors bitter jealousy, you may receive a blast or a look or a cold shoulder of such bitter jealousy. And then, then James also talks about selfish ambition. And selfish ambition comes or talks about politics in the first century. It describes people who were in angry competition who undermined one another and fought for their own rights, which is often the way politics happens. There's little civil discussion or respectful discourse. It's insults, mocking, and assuming the worst about another. And this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition can come into Christian communities. James doesn't write about this because he thinks, you know, an interesting topic might be bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in the world. He's talking about it in the church. He saw Christians with these attitudes. He writes, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth, claiming you've got wisdom. No. I will show you where this wisdom comes from, and that's verse 15, the source of this wisdom. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So this is wisdom from below in verses 14 to 16. It is earthly, which means compared to heaven's wisdom, earthly wisdom is passing. It's weak. It's imperfect. It limits its scope to the things of the earth. This wisdom is also unspiritual, which comes from the word psychikos in Greek, which is always negative, relating to the word psyche or soul, and it refers to humans depending solely on their feeling or reason. So this is human wisdom alone, and James calls it unspiritual. But perhaps most troubling is his third description of the source of this wisdom. Demonic. It means either the wisdom is demonic in nature or it's inspired by demons. And remember, he's talking to people in churches. So isn't that scary? People in churches could be sharing demonic wisdom. One commentator writes, there's a kind of person who is maybe clever and has a sharp brain and a skillful tongue, but their aim on any committee and any church in any group is to cause trouble and disturb personal relationships. It is a sobering thing to remember that the wisdom he or she possesses is devilish rather than divine. 
And James concludes this, this discussion on wisdom from below by showing us where it leads in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So chaos rules and evil thrives when the wisdom from below is followed. But then James describes the great alternative in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And of these seven describing the wisdom from above, I think most of them are actually the product of wisdom from above. I think only the first one describes the nature of the wisdom from above. It is pure, free from stain or any blemish. It would be incapable of producing evil for it's coming from heaven. It is unstained from the world, unmixed with anything worldly or demonic. And from such pure wisdom, the other results flow. So people who live by wisdom from above are peaceable people, not bitterly jealous, not selfishly ambitious, peaceable, making peace, seeking peace. And they are also gentle or considerate. And to be gentle means to be kind and to be willing to yield and to treat another person with the same amount of care that you would if you're holding a newborn baby. And the wisdom from above also produces a person who is open to reason. And you know what this word literally means? It means one who is easily persuaded. Now, that does not mean being weak or gullible. It is a sense of deferring to others in matters that are not theologically or morally foundational, or unalterable. So a person who lives by wisdom from above will be willing to defer to others in matters of secondary importance. But you know, there's some people who have to have everything their own way. The decorations have to be their way. The event has to be run their way. The restaurant we go to must be their restaurant. The movie that we watch must be their movie. All secondary issues, all insisted upon by a person who is not open to reason. They're not open to reason with people who disagree with them. And people who live like that often can only be friends with people who agree with them in about 99% of the issues. They are suspicious of people who have differing views and opinions. Yet such an attitude, we're told here, is not of wisdom that comes from above. It's wisdom from below. Think about Jesus and the diverse group of people that he called to be his disciples. They had different political leanings. They had different jobs and different approaches to life. Yet Jesus united them around that which was primary. He taught them to be open to others with differing views on secondary issues. And then those who live by wisdom from above are full of mercy and good fruits. And those who harbor bitter jealousy and selfish ambition can't be merciful unless it makes them look good. 
But Jesus, who was full of wisdom from above, was full of mercy and good fruit. They're also impartial, which we talked about in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and sincere, meaning there's no hypocrisy in their speech. You don't have to wonder if they will do what they say. They will follow through on their word. And in verse 17, we see what it looks like when a person lives by wisdom from above. And friends, since we've been together, many of us, for more than 15 years, I want to say I have seen among many of you this living by the wisdom from above, living with a humility that comes from wisdom. And though you will not get any recognition from our world or praise from our world for living like this, God sees it. God blesses you, and he continues to guide and walk with you through life's hard seasons. So, as we close, what's James' point in all of this? Simply, Christians must learn and live by heavenly wisdom. We must learn it. We must live by it. But we don't do that in our own strength. We depend on Jesus, who will teach us this wisdom and transform our thinking so that we will grow in living by it. And think about how Jesus lived his life. He lived a sinless life and consistently lived by his father's wisdom. He refused selfish ambition. He didn't hold on to his high status in heaven. And he turned down Satan's offer to be a prince of the world if only you would just bow down to me. Jesus said no to such selfish ambition. Instead, he humbled himself. He took on human flesh. He became a servant who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And his blood was poured out so that we might have life. And the father decided he would accept Jesus' self-sacrifice as an atoning sacrifice for us. But we don't get the benefits of that sacrifice by just knowing about it. We must come to Christ by putting our trust in him and his work on the cross. And we put our faith in him, not ourselves. And when we do that, God the Father forgives us and declares us not guilty forever. And he adopts us into his family. And we begin the journey of learning and living by the wisdom of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so back to our question today. Whose wisdom have you been living by lately? Is there something that you need to confess to God and say, yeah, I have been living by the wisdom of the world, or I have been trusting only my own wisdom? I need to confess that to you. And then we need all who are believers to continue to grow in learning and living by the wisdom of God. And there might be some here today who have never put their trust in Christ and their sacrifice, his sacrifice for you. You can do that today in a prayer that I will lead you in in just a moment before we meet at the Lord's table. So let's come to the Lord in prayer. And I want to invite you, first of all, just to come to God. And if he's been saying anything to you today about whose wisdom you've been following, maybe you can respond to that now. And if you have never put the trust of your life onto Christ, I invite you to maybe repeat in your heart this prayer that I am going to speak now. Lord God, 
I admit I have been living according to the world's wisdom. I now see this is rebellion against you and your perfect wisdom. I confess this sin and repent of living this way. I now trust Jesus and the sacrifice he made for me on the cross. I receive Jesus into my life as my Savior and my Lord. And Lord, we are bombarded every day by wisdom from below. And it is hard to wade through it and to fight through it. And it is distracting. And we can go on in our lives for days, weeks, sometimes months without turning to you and your wisdom. Forgive us when we do that, Lord. And draw us back to yourself. Expose in our hearts any sympathy or practice of the wisdom from below. And reveal to us the beautiful wisdom from above. We pray in your powerful name. Amen.